The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let's open God's word this morning to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. Before we begin, we need to make sure that we are prepared for the study of God's Word. The only prerequisite is that we are, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, and whenever we sin, we realize that we grieve the Holy Spirit or quench the Holy Spirit, and so it is necessary for us to follow the mandate contained within 1 John 1, 9 and reflected in numerous other passages to confess our sins privately to the Lord. We're instantly cleansed from those sins, forgiven of all sins, named, unnamed, forgotten. Every sin is uh, forgiven at that point, and we are restored to fellowship. Let's bow our heads in prayer. A few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to gather together as a body of believers to worship you, to have fellowship through the teaching of your word, that we might learn uh, your viewpoint on everything in life, that we might uh, assimilate that into our souls, have our thinking transformed, that we might live a life that conforms to the reality that you have defined, and that we may glorify you in all that we think and all that we say and all that we do. Now, as we study your word, we pray that we would be uh, receptive to it, that we would be uh, alert and have the uh, concentration necessary to study your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there are few doctrines in Scripture that are quite as misunderstood as the doctrine we're going to begin to study this morning. This is the doctrine of inheritance. We have twice so far, or really three times, gone through passages or studied through passages in Galatians 3 that have referenced inheritance and heirship and in, in it, and its relationship to sonship and adoption. 
For example, Galatians 3.18 says, For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Verse 29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then verse 1 of chapter 4, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. In the last two weeks, we've gone through this first paragraph of chapter 4, which concludes with the verse, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So having covered this subject, or gone through verses that referenced heirship several times, it's time for us to stop and focus on this doctrine, because there it's very important, it's critical to understanding our whole spiritual life and vital aspects of spiritual life in this age. So we'll just start off very simply. This is more an introduction to the doctrine of of inheritance and heirship. And as we exegete through Galatians and some other passages in coming weeks, we will add to this doctrine. That's really the process for building any doctrine. Sometimes people get the idea that doctrines are almost have an autonomous existence. But what you do is you compare Scripture with Scripture, and in that comparison of Scripture, something taught, one facet of a doctrine taught in this passage, then another facet is taught in another passage. And as you go through those passages, comparing Scripture with Scripture, you learn and derive different aspects and different principles from different passages, and then you collect them together and categorize them and develop a a doctrine. But you always have to be careful that your doctrine or your theology always is always derived from exegesis. Exegesis rules. That develops your doctrine. And sometimes when you have passages that seem somewhat fuzzy or a little confusing, then you go back and you can take known passages and clear passages and you use those to interpret the uh, unclear passages. And too often we forget and we start developing doctrines and we get to a point where we're so uh, adept at developing these wonderful 20, 30-point doctrines that we get a little bit far removed from the passages that anchor them to the revelation of God. So we're going to start here, raise some issues, focus on it, and see how it relates to the subject that Paul is addressing, which is legalism in Galatia, one of the greatest enemies to grace and to the spiritual life is legalism. Why is it that Paul keeps coming back to this subject of inheritance? Well, let's start off with point number one, vocabulary words, what is the Greek here and how does that help us understand inheritance? The noun is kleronomos. Looks like this in the Greek. K-L-E-R-O-N-O-M-O-S and the verb is kleronomeo. K-L-E-R-O-N-O-M-E-O. The noun and the verb. The noun means inheritance, possession, or property. The verb means to possess, to receive something as one's own possession, and to obtain something. Now, having gone through those Definitions, inheritance, possession, property for the noun, 
to possess, to receive is one's possession, and to obtain in the verb. You see there is a slightly different meaning to the Greek concept or the Greek word for inheritance and our English understanding of inheritance. In our English understanding, when we think about an heir or inheritance, we think of things that are passed on at someone's death to a child, to a descendant of someone. But that is an added concept to the word. The root meaning is always possession, something that someone has as their very own. And in the Greek and Roman world, this is tied, or especially in the Roman world, tied to the whole concept of adoption, which had to do with the recognition of adulthood and not the placing of a child into a new family. So we have to go back and the Bible, remember the Bible must always be interpreted within the time in which it was written. And so the concept here is that a, that a father or a family might have certain possessions, titles, lands, etc. And the natural born child might be inept, he might be a fool, he might be irresponsible, and the father looks at him and says, I'm not about to pass on the family name, the family property, and all, all the wealth to this fool and let him squander it. So I have a slave or there is a, uh, someone else that I have become close to and I'm going to adopt them as in my adult son, a huios in the Greek, as my adult son, and they will be the designated heir. And this would happen usually at the age of 14. And in, in the... Uh, uh, practice at that time, there was the payment, if it was not the natural child, there was the symbolic payment of a price, which is analogous to uh, redemption. So the Apostle Paul, under the leadership of God the Holy Spirit in writing Scripture, takes this cultural analogy in order to teach critical principles about how God makes an unbeliever a part of the family and all that we have in terms of our inheritance possessions and spiritual assets as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it, we start by understanding kleronomeo as to possess or to receive as one's possession. Now an inheritance can be a birthright in the scriptures which one enters by virtue of sonship. So one way in which it's used is a, a, a birthright which one enters by virtue of sonship this is found in Galatians chapter 4.30, which we will come to in a few weeks, and also Hebrews 1.4 in talking about Christ as the heir of creation. Secondly, it can refer to property that is received as a gift in contrast to something that's given as a reward. Property that's received as a gift in contrast to a reward, Hebrews 1.14 and Hebrews 6.12. So in terms of definition, we have seen that it can be a birthright, a possession that's a gift, and third, it can be property that is received on the basis of the fulfillment of certain conditions. Property received once certain conditions have been, have been met, and in terms of certain uh, obedience to those conditions. And then fourth, it can be a reward based on meeting certain conditions and following certain activities. So the Bible sees inheritance in four different ways. A birthright, property as a gift, 
property based on obedience, property as a reward. Uh, property received as a gift is Hebrews 1, 14 and 6, 12. Property based on certain conditions of obedience would be 1 Peter 3, 9. And re- reward based on meeting certain conditions and following certain activities would be seen in passages such as um, uh, Gala- uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses... Uh, 16 and following. We'll get into it in those passages. But we'll look at that a little bit as we develop the doctrine. Point number two. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 2. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. In these last days, God has spoken to us by means of His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. So, in terms of Christology... Jesus Christ is the heir or possessor of all things. So Christ, therefore, is the heir as the adult son, the huios, and he possesses all things. Point number three. Inheritance is based on adoption. The sonship aspect of adoption. Therefore, inheritance is related to our position in Christ, the doctrine of positional truth. This is seen from Galatians 3.29 and 4.1. If you belong to Christ, that's positional truth being in Christ. If we belong to Christ, if we are in Christ, and at the moment of salvation, remember, at the moment of salvation, at faith alone in Christ alone, every believer is placed into Christ through the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. That was covered in Galatians 3:27 through 28. Then Paul developed that and said, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, that is, possessors, according to promise. So the inheritance, there's one inheritance that is based upon our position in Christ, positional truth. Also, this is found in Romans 8, 16 through 17. If you are your father's son, then you are the father's heir. The Spirit himself, uh, Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we, we may also be glorified. With him. Now, we're going to come back and look at that passage in a little more detail under, under a subsequent point, but for right now, we're just looking at the principle that heirship is based on adoption and is related to positional truth. So once we are in Christ, we are designated an heir. Point number four. Inheritance is based on the grace promise of the Abrahamic covenant. This is crucial to understanding the whole concept of inheritance. It's based on the grace promise of the Abrahamic covenant. This is back to our, our verse in Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Why? Why are you a descendant of Abraham? Because you have followed him in faith alone, in Christ alone. Heirs according to the promise. What was the promise? That's where we have to go back in context to verse 14 of chapter 3, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles 
so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So here the promise is related to the uh, saving ministries of God the Holy Spirit in the church age, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it is also designated as, as the result of faith alone in Christ alone. It is the result of grace. It is not the result of works. So point number four emphasizes that inheritance is based on the grace promise of the Abrahamic covenant. We saw that there were three provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. The third was a promise that through Abraham's offspring, all humanity would be blessed. So it's a grace promise. It's not based on works. Point number five. Inheritance demands eternal life because the son must have the same life as the father. Inheritance demands eternal life because the Son must have the same life as the Father. So the fifth point focuses on the kind of life that comes with adoption. God the Father has eternal life. When we are adopted as His sons, as adult sons, which is the subject of Galatians, the end of Galatians 3 and Galatians 4, as huios, H-U-I-O-S, as we ask, then God the Father imputes to us and gives us His very own eternal life. So as part of our possession, as heirs, we have eternal life. Every single believer has eternal life. That's the promise here. That's what we're seeing from Galatians 3 and Galatians 4. The focus on adoption is going to be what every single believer has as part of their inheritance in Christ. Point number, uh, further passage on that would be Titus 3, 5 through 7. He saved us not on the basis of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Notice the connection here. The Apostle Paul in Titus 3, 5, and 6 focuses on the, the saving ministries of God the Holy Spirit, ties it to justification and inheritance in verse 7, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And the Greek preposition there translated according to is kata, K-A-T-A, which means according to the standard of something, according to the standard of our confidence, confident expectation of eternal life. So there we see that eternal life is given to the believer as part of the package of, of inheritance possession at salvation with his, with his adoption. Point number six. Inheritance means to share the destiny of Jesus Christ. Inheritance means that we share the destiny of Jesus Christ. So let's go back here and try to clean up our diagram a little bit. At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, we come to the cross, we hear the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And at that moment, when we respond through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are placed in Christ, positional truth. What we are seeing in all these passages is that part of the package of being in Christ includes adoption, inheritance, And it includes 
destiny. We share the same destiny with Christ. also includes, a skip eternal life, it includes eternal life. Here we're focusing on the destiny aspect. Christ has an eternal destiny, and we share it by virtue of our election in Christ. Ephesians 1.11 Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Predestined is one of those red flag words that always causes a lot of consternation and confusion. And all it means is to predestined that God determines our destiny beforehand. And our destiny is to share the destiny of Jesus Christ in His glory uh, in eternity, in the kingdom and in heaven for eternity. So we are destined ahead of time. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ and has faith alone in Christ alone will share that same destiny. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is that confident expectation that we have. Our hope focuses on the future, which is our destiny. Point number seven. Inheritance is both a present reality and a future possession. This is where we start getting into some of the more technical, confusing aspects of this doctrine. When you look at various passages in the Scripture that talk about inheritance or heirship, they may be focusing on a present reality or that passage may be focusing on one facet of the future possession. So you have to say, which is in view here? Inheritance is presented in Scripture as both a present reality and a future possession. We have the present reality. Right now we are adopted. We, are, we have an inheritance that we have right now. We have eternal life. We share the destiny of Christ. But this destiny starts bringing in the future idea, that there is a future aspect to this inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5 focuses on it. Also Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In Him, that is, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So another aspect of our possession in Christ is the sealing of God the Holy Spirit, which relates to the doctrine of eternal security. That once you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Holy Spirit puts a stamp of ownership on you. It's like the branding of a calf. And that shows that you are owned by God the Father, and that brand can never be removed. You are sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. And there we see the concept of redemption is a future concept and not just a past concept. Christ died on the cross. When He went to the cross... For three hours on the cross, when everything was in darkness, God the Father poured out upon Jesus Christ all the sins of humanity, and He paid the penalty. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He paid the penalty as our substitute in our place, so that that was paid in full. Now, that's a past act. But in this passage, and in some passages, it looks to redemption as a future act. And in that sense, we're talking about the fulfillment of redemption in the same sense that we talk about three phases of salvation. Phase one salvation, 
we are saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two, we're saved from the power of sin. And in phase three, we're saved from the presence of sin. This is when redemption is fully realized and accomplished. It's when it reaches the goal of bringing many sons into glory and we are absent from the body face to face with the Lord and no longer have a sin nature and are living in, a, in, a, in final sanctification, which is in heaven. So even redemption is a, is a term that has different nuances, both a past nuance and a future nuance. So point number seven was, inheritance is both a present reality and a future possession, 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5, Ephesians 1, 11, 1, 13 and 1, 14. Point number eight, inheritance means eternal security, an inheritance that is undefiled. If we have just seen this in, in the concept of the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, and it is reiterated in 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, that means it can't be destroyed, it's incorruptible. We have it forever. That inheritance is given to us at the moment of salvation, it, or it becomes our possession at the moment of salvation. It is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And then we see the phrase that brings that future aspect to it. It is reserved in heaven for you. Now, this also applies to what I call contingency blessings in eternity. It's part of that inheritance package. There's two divisions. We're, I'm not going to develop these a lot this morning, but we'll get into it in future developments of the doctrine. Contingency blessings in time and contingency blessings in eternity. These are blessings that are part of our inheritance package that God has for us that are reserved for us on the basis of reaching a certain levels of spiritual maturity. It's not quite the sense of a reward as it is, I keep going over this, as it is that God waits for us to reach a certain level of capacity. It's only through learning doctrine that we grow spiritually and develop capacity for life and for happiness. And God's not going to give us certain blessings in life until we have the capacity for them. Otherwise, they become destructive because in arrogance, we will misuse and abuse those blessings and they'll end up destroying us rather than uh, being a blessing and advancing us in the spiritual life. So contingency blessings in time and eternity are part of our inheritance package, and our, concert, our uh, contingency blessings in eternity are, are what, what is referred to as that which is reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God. See, we are protected by the power of God. That's eternal security. It is not up to us to keep ourselves saved. It is God's responsibility to keep us saved. Through faith, see it was faith alone in Christ alone that got us saved. It had nothing to do with our own efforts, our own goodness, our own righteousness. We're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this is talking about phase three, salvation, our contingency, contingent blessings in eternity. Point number nine, God the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance. God the Holy Spirit is a down payment on our inheritance. 
We've seen this in Ephesians 1.14 where it says, He is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Also in Galatians 4.6, And because you are sons, huios, adult sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This idea is, still carried, is also carried along in Romans chapter 8. The Holy Spirit is related as the down payment on our inheritance. But there is a problem. This is point number 10. All of that is by way, really, of introduction before we begin to focus on the basic problem of inheritance. The basic problem is that there are some passages which speak of inheritance as a permanent possession based on faith alone and Christ alone. And we've seen that already. That's why I keep going back to look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law in verse 13 in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And it's that promise of the Spirit through faith which is referred to in verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So if you belong to Christ, first class condition, and you do, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to Christ. So Galatians 3.29 makes it clear that if you are a believer, you are an heir. Period. But there are also passages which seem to speak of inheritance as an acquisition or a reward. Further, there are other passages that indicate that if you participate in certain activities, then you will not be an heir. For example, in the discussion of the, deed, the works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, in Galatians 5:19 through 21, it says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. This is not a, an exclusive list. There are many other sins that can be listed. In fact, all sins fit into this category. Paul just says, And things like this, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So on the one hand, we have passages that say that, that inheritance is a grace gift has nothing to do with works. It's given to us by faith alone in Christ alone at the moment of salvation. And then we have passages like this which say that if you participate in any number of activities, mental attitude sins or sins of the tongue, then you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what does that mean? Another passage of passages, that, uh, a couple of other passages that relate to this confusion will be found in Ephesians 5.5. 5. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, and that's an important passage because what that does is it leaks greed or materialism lust to idolatry. You're worshiping things and the things that money can buy. 
covetous person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So there, if you're immoral, you have impure thoughts, you're covetous, greedy, you like things and you want things, then you're not going to have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 3.24 Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So their inheritance is seen as a reward. So what's going on in all of these passages? On the one hand, it's viewed as a gift. On the other hand, it is viewed as something that is earned, worked for, or is a reward. What do we do with these passages? Now, I want you to think about a couple of things here. Let's look at one other problem passage, just so we keep it in mind. We'll come back and look at them in a little more detail. But I want you to be aware of the problem, because at some point or another, you're going to be witnessing to somebody, or you're going to be involved in a discussion with some other Christian, and they're going to tell you, look, if you, if you do any of these activities, see, they're legalists, and they're focused on external activities or sins, they don't realize that every sin's paid for. They're going to go to these passages and say, look, if you do these things, you can't be saved. Do you not know that 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuality, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. The problem is that we want to go to these passages and take this phrase, inherit the kingdom of God, as a phrase that equals salvation. Now, if inheriting the kingdom means being saved or having eternal life, then that immediately means that you should not have any sort of jail ministry whatsoever. Because they're not going to go to heaven anyway because they're murderers and thieves and lawbreakers and they can't get into heaven at all. So why have a jail ministry? Secondly, if we're going to take it that way, that means that anyone who's ever committed any of these sins isn't going to be in heaven. That means if you've ever had impure thoughts, if you've ever had sexual lust, if you've ever had, uh, if you've ever stolen anything, if you uh, ever had committed certain overt sins, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, if you've ever gotten drunk, it says drunkard, so we'll say if you've gotten drunk more than once, um, you're not going to be in heaven. Now, that's the implication of that, of that passage. Now, the Scriptures are very clear, and we've seen it from so many passages, that it's clear that eternal life is a free gift of God that is not by works of righteousness which we have done. Titus 3.5, Ephesians 2.8.9 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, what? Not of works, lest any man should boast. So, if inherit, so we know right away that the phrase inheriting the kingdom is not equal to salvation or eternal life. It would be a complete contradiction of everything else in Scripture. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean to inherit the kingdom? So this brings us to point number 11, a conclusion. There are two categories of inheritance in the Bible. Two categories of inheritance in the Bible, and that is 
substantiated by two particular verses or phrases. One is the phrase that we've already looked at, which is inherit the kingdom. That's found in Ephesians 5, 5, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. And then there is another phrase, inherit salvation. And that phrase is found in Hebrews 1, verse 14. So inheritance means possession. But it depends on what we are possessing. You have to look at the object in the context. What kind of inheritance is in view? And we have already seen that there are some possessions that are, an in, that are given to every single believer at the moment of salvation in Christ as part of adoption. There is inheritance. Romans 8.17 is a critical passage to understand, so let's turn there to Romans chapter 8. Verse 17. Now this passage is talking about believers. We don't have time to exegete through all of Romans 8 in order to get the context, but I want to pick it up in verse 12 so we can catch the thought flow of the Apostle Paul at this point. Verse 12. So then, brethren, we... Brethren and we tell us he's talking to believers about spiritual life issues. He's not talking about salvation issues. We are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You know, he doesn't finish the thought. He, he gets diverted. We're under obligation. What does that mean that we are under obligation? This is an important concept. Obligation does not mean works. It does not mean legalism. Obligation means that you have something that has with it certain responsibilities. We are adopted into the family of God and we are given... uh, Christ has done a, a phenomenal number of things for us and provided a vast array of assets for us, for our spiritual life, and we are given many possessions that are ours at the moment of adoption as sons. And with those possessions come responsibility. For example, if I were to give you a brand new 1999 Lexus, fully loaded with everything on it, everything you could ever hope for or imagine that was available for a car, I would give that to you, sign it over to you. You have the title of deed on the card has your name on it. It is yours. I don't, because I'm a grace giver, just a little side point. Grace giving means whenever you give to anybody, there are no strings ever attached. That's what grace orientation means. That means that when you give a check, a contribution to a, a ministry, you don't then look at their newsletter and say, oh my, my, they didn't do that the way I would do it, so I'm not going to give them a check next month. It's not how it works. Grace giving means I'm giving this to you to do with as you want, and if you end up squandering it, that's okay. That's what grace giving is all about. Because God gives us, the point I'm making here is God gives us all kinds of things which we squander all the time. But God doesn't take it back. That's grace. If I were to give you a 1999 Lexus, that's yours. You have, your name is on it. That's your possession. Now that car can be a wonderful blessing for you. 
But if you're a 13-year-old who's never been taught any responsibility and you don't understand the concepts of obligation and responsibility, then you're going to forget to change the oil. You're going to forget to do a number of other maintenance things. You may not check the air pressure in the tires, and that will go down. And and instead of getting 50,000 miles on your steel-belted radials, you'll get 12 or 18,000 miles. If you forget to change the oil or even to check the oil, before long you're going to run out of oil, and your engine will lock up. Is the car still yours? The car is still yours. Inherent with possession of the car are certain responsibilities to take care of the car and to maintain the vehicle. That doesn't mean that you have to do those things in order to get and to keep the car. But if that car is going to have any value in your life and, and be of any benefit to you, then you are going to take care of, you are going to fulfill those obligations. See, God has given us a gift of, of, of unique spiritual life. And many, many assets that go with that. But we can squander it. And too many Christians are doing just that. They don't get into the Word. They get involved in emotionalism. They get involved in mysticism and all kinds of ritualism and legalism on the one hand. And on the other hand, they just go back into licentiousness and immorality. And they just do whatever they want to do in antinomianism. Now, they're still saved. The possession is still there. But what has happened is they've squandered it because they have failed to realize that there are certain obligations and responsibilities that go with being an adult son of God. And to to benefit from that adult sonship, you must fulfill the responsibilities. So that's why Paul says in verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. See, there's only two categories. You are, as a believer, you are either going to be living according to the flesh, which is the sin nature, or you are going to be living according to the power of God the Holy Spirit, which is the the first power option. There are two power options in the Christian life. You have to have both to go anywhere. One is the filling of the Holy Spirit, and the second is the Word of God, Bible doctrine in your soul. So you're you're either living on this side of the line in the filling of the Holy Spirit, or you're living on this side of the line in the power of the flesh and the sin nature. Verse 13, if you are living according to the flesh, this is the word in the old English called carnality. If you are living according to the flesh, this is extended carnality, you must die. This is divine discipline. It's the sin unto death. But if by means of God the Holy Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body... You will live. This relates to the principle we saw in James 1.22, week before last, where we are to put off certain works, certain sins. We're to put off uh, immorality and all the uh, abnormal growth in which sin consists. That's the correct translation of James 1.22. You don't do that in your own power. You do it according to Romans uh, 8.13 by means of the power of God the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So there we are introduced to another ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the leadership ministry of God the Holy Spirit to every single believer. Verse 15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. That's carnality. When you're over here, you're in bondage to the sin nature. We've been freed from that. 
We'll get into the doctrine of spiritual freedom in Galatians chapter 5. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, haven't we seen that already in Galatians 3.6? This is part of the, the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, given to every believer uh, at the moment of salvation. Verse 16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also. Now, at that point, we can follow the logic of his argument that if you have put your faith alone in Christ alone, you receive the Holy Spirit and you receive adoption as sons, verse 15 and verse 16. If you have adoption as sons, you are a child of God. Here it's the Greek word techna. You are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, you are also an heir. So at this point, we're still talking about inheritance that is a free gift to every believer as part of the package of being adopted as a son of God at the moment of salvation, our positional reality. If children heirs also, heirs of God. Now, this is a technical term. The inheritance that we are given at salvation is for every believer as part of that package, that grace-promise package that comes from the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, that is ours in Christ at the moment of salvation. Notice, in the New American Standard, we need to repunctuate the English. If children, comma, heirs also, comma, heirs of God, comma, and... Joint heirs with Christ. There are two different inheritances emphasized in this verse. The heir of God is for every single believer. As part of our inheritance, we have all of the positional truth blessings of Jesus Christ, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, eternal life. Uh, we are heirs to the promise of Abraham uh, re- related to the Abrahamic covenant. But the second category, joint heirs with Christ. What do you have to do to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ? If indeed, this is the condition in the last half of the verse, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, Hebrews tells us that we suffer just as our Lord suffered because He had to learn obedience through the things in which He suffered. So part of, and we've seen in our study in James 1, uh, 2 through 4, is that suffering is the mechanic by which God reinforces the doctrine in our soul and brings us from spiritual infancy, because in the midst of that suffering we apply doctrine and we grow to spiritual maturity. When we suffer with Christ, that suffering with Christ stands for going through that process of discipline. And according to Hebrews chapter 12, while we, we hurt and it is painful for a little while to go through that suffering, we do it because afterwards we know that it bears the fruit of righteousness, production righteousness. And so as we advance to maturity... We spend more and more time under the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
we'll say this side of the line represents the filling of the Holy Spirit and this side represents uh, carnality and the sin nature. At any point in time, as we advance to maturity, we're either on this side of the line in the filling of the Holy Spirit or we're on this side of the line in the sin nature. When we're a spiritual infant, we spend a very little amount of time under the filling of the Holy Spirit because we're still sinning a lot. and maximum amount of time under the control of the sin nature. And as we advance, at any point in time, we're either under the filling of the Holy Spirit or under the sin nature. But as we advance more and more towards spiritual maturity, we will spend more and more time under the filling of the Holy Spirit and less and less time controlled by the sin nature. This is the basis there. What happens on this side of the line under the filling of the Holy Spirit, that's where we have the production of divine good which becomes the basis for eternal reward. This is the fruit of righteousness, the production of righteousness, where, wherein the Holy Spirit also produces the fruit of the Spirit and the character of Jesus Christ. So, there are two kinds of inheritance, two kinds of heirship. Inheriting the kingdom and inheriting salvation. Inheriting salvation has to do with having eternal life and those blessings that every believer equally possesses from the moment of salvation. But inheriting the kingdom is a different category. Inheriting the kingdom has to do with, our, with ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ in His kingdom. It has to do with owning the kingdom and possessing the kingdom. Those who are heirs of the kingdom are the spiritual aristocracy in eternity. But we see that there are going to be many believers who, because they never learn any doctrine or never apply any doctrine, spend most of their lives under the control of the sin nature. They never deal with the sin in their life. They never advance to spiritual adulthood. And the result is they are disqualified from inheriting the kingdom. They still have eternal salvation. They'll still spend eternity in heaven. But they will not rule and reign with Christ. And they will not own or possess the kingdom. They will be classified as those who lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Or 12 through 15. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that's divine good. Wood, hay, straw, that's human good. We all have a mix of divine good and human good in our lives. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. That day, is, in context, is the judgment seat of Christ. Because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will evaluate the quality of each man's work. So, at the judgment seat of Christ, every believer is evaluated not to see if they go into heaven or have eternal life, but to see the, the quality of that eternal existence and where they will be in the kingdom. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. So it's this, this metaphor that everything that we've done in life is piled up and then it's burned. Just as you purify gold and silver and precious stones through, through heat that burns off the impurities, that's the picture here, and that there, there's this burning and anything that's, that's human good is burned off. So whatever is left 
is that which we have produced in our life that has eternal value and significance. And it's on that basis, that's our evaluation, so it's not to focus on the bad. God's not going to trot out every sin we committed, every failure in our life. It's burned up. It's not the issue. The sins were paid for by Christ from the cross. The issue at the judgment seat of Christ is not what you did wrong. The issue in the judgment seat of Christ is what we did that produced divine good. It's positive. And so we're either going to have a small little bundle that we can carry around in our hand, or some people are going to have huge pallets full of uh, gold, silver, and precious stones that they're going to need forklifts to move around. Whatever's left over, that's the basis for your evaluation and eternity and your position in heaven. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as through fire. That's these people. That's the people in 1 Corinthians 6. That's the people at Galatians uh, 5 that's talking about that if you do these works, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will lose rewards and you will not be in the ruling and reigning aristocracy in heaven. You will not own or possess the kingdom. You will simply be a citizen there. You will simply be living in the kingdom. You will have eternal life. There will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. The old things will pass away. But much that you could have had, those contingent blessings in eternity will remain on file somewhere and you can go look at all the things you could have had that God was going to give you but because you operated on negative volition most of your life you didn't learn any doctrine and you didn't didn't apply it then God never gave those to you and there will be no rewards in heaven now for a last point point number 12 we have our Old Testament illustration of inheritance given in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 16 and 17. So let's turn there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 and 17. Let's get the context because it's important. We have an overriding mandate, a general mandate for the spiritual life given in verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That's spiritual growth. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That doesn't mean lose your salvation. That means not to display not to display grace orientation in life and to move back into legalism. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright, that's his, his inheritance, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Now, what happened here? Well, in the Old Testament, you have the story about Jacob and Esau, who were twins. They were the sons of Isaac. At one point, when Jacob, when Esau was out, he'd been out hunting. Esau was an outdoorsman. He liked to hunt and fish and backpack and hike and go all over the wilderness of, of uh, Judea to explore everything and and. Uh, Jacob was more of a homebody and a little more uh, domesticated and domestic in his interests. And Esau had been out hunting, and he came back, and Jacob was in fixing dinner. He was fixing a mess of pottage, the old King James says, which was a lentil soup. And as Esau came in the door, he hadn't eaten for a couple of days, and he was famished. And he smelled this wonderful lentil soup cooking on the stove, and he said, well, I'd sure like some of that. Well, Jacob said, I'm not going to give it to you. This is my supper. 
Esau said, no, I'm really hungry. What, what, what will you take for it? I'll pay you well. Jacob said, the only way you're going to get anything to eat from me is if you sell me your inheritance. So Esau sold him his inheritance for a bowl of soup. And that meant that when it came time later for the two sons to inherit from the father Isaac, that the inheritance went to the younger son Jacob instead of the older son Esau. So Esau gave up all of his inheritance rights, the possession, the lands, the herds, the flocks, everything that would have been his by right as the eldest son, he gave that up for a bowl of soup. Trouble is, a lot of believers are giving up their inheritance rights and position and possessions in Jesus Christ for a bowl of soup. And that's the problem with the Galatian believers. And that's why Paul is being so harsh with them in Galatia. The bowl of soup is legalism. There are two trends in the sin nature. One is towards legalism and one is towards licentiousness. Now sin, all personal, all sin has been paid for by Christ on the cross, but the sin nature is the great enemy of the spiritual life. Because once we're under the control of the sin nature, anything we do has no value whatsoever. And as long as we're under the control of the sin nature, then we're going to be in a position of divine discipline. Now we can move towards legalism in which we're trying to gain and acquire the approbation of God. And this is what was going on in Galatia. The Judaizers had come along and said that if you really want to be saved, you not only have to believe in Christ, but you have to be circumcised. It's not faith alone. It's faith plus ritual. Faith plus the Mosaic Law. Faith plus works. Now, in the Galatian background, there was paganism and the, mystery, the practice of the mystery religions in the, in the Greek culture, which involved a lot of licentiousness and the phallic cult and a lot of other uh, practices that in, involved uh, an alcohol abuse and drugs and various things like that to get into some kind of altered state of consciousness so they could commune with the various gods in the Greek pantheon. So they had come from a background of licentiousness and idolatry, and now they were, they were going in the other extreme into legalism. And this is the context of the passage we're dealing with in Galatians chapter 4. So let's turn back to Galatians chapter 4 and see how all of this teaching on inheritance applies to, to Paul's argument. Paul is set telling the Galatians, you are an heir of God. You've been adopted into God's family and you have all of this as your birthright as God's adult son. Quit squandering it. Don't sell it for a mess of pottage like Esau did, either by reverting to legalism, which has been the primary subject up to this point. He's been talking about the Mosaic Law, that the law was, uh, was not permanent, the law was temporary, and that the law can't save and the law can't, can't sanctify. And now he's going to revert to the licentious aspect of it in verses 8 through 12. He's going to refer back to their life before they were saved. Verse 8, he says, However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who are by nature are no gods. This is idolatry. Now, idolatry can come under various categories. It can be licentious under the concept of the phallic cult, or it, you could even have idolatry over here under the guise of religion if there's legalism involved. But we'll put it, because it was Greek idolatry, we'll put it over here under licentiousness and immorality. They were slaves to idols. Now, idols are not gods, but there are demons associated with idolatry. 
according to 1 Corinthians. So the demons were behind the idols. That's the only reality there is to idols. And they were involved in demonism. However, at that time, that is before you were saved, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, that is, you, you are known by God, that is, you have a personal relationship with God. He looks at it from both the human perspective, which is to come to know God by faith alone in Christ alone, and to be known by God when God knows you as His adult son and adopt, adopted into His family. Paul says, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? See, this is the problem with, in, with many Christians. is After they're saved, they either want to go back into some form of legalism, and they get involved in some form of legalism, emphasizing ritual without reality, or they get involved in some form of antinomianism, and licentiousness and lasciviousness, thinking, well, you know, God's going to forgive me for my sins, so I'll just sin. You know, it's a lot easier. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And it's a lot easier than trying to exercise any self-discipline, learn doctrine, go to Bible class three or four times a week. I certainly don't want to do that. That's a little, little, uh, little too over the top for me. I'm just going to keep living my life the way I want to and focus on that and then... Um, I won't be, ever be accused of being a religious zealot. So we want to turn back and live like we did before we were saved. Thinking, okay, now, have you ever heard this? Well, it doesn't matter where I am in heaven, just as long as I'm there. And that's just a crock. Well, I won't say what it is, but you know what it is. And I get tired of hearing that because we were not saved just so we could get into heaven. We were saved so that we could live a life pleasing to God that would glorify God in the angelic conflict and that God has just an unbelievable amount of blessing for each and every one of us that He desires to give us. But if we just cop out and say, well, I'm just glad I'm in His family. I don't care if I'm the, you know, the dumb son or not then we're going to miss out on so much that God has for us, and that's the problem with most believers, is they just have such a low standard for the Christian life and such a low level of expectation, and they're going to get exactly what they expect, which is nothing. So the Galatians are not only tempted to turn to legalism on the one hand, but there are those who are tempted to turn back to licentiousness and immorality on the other hand and their old religions. So Paul says, now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to these weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. And that's kind of an insult. And it goes to the fact that under the Judaizers, they were now beginning to observe all the feast days and various fasts under Judaism. But under the Greek paganism that they came from, there were all also religious festivals and religious feast days, and they were beginning to observe those. And Paul is saying that in the church age, there's no emphasis on feasts or fasts or religious festivals or religious days. That's all secondary. It has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Now, you can apply that to Christmas and Easter if you wish. But biblical Christianity, the Bible makes no emphasis on observing any of these days. In fact, Easter was a, the, the worship of Easter or 
our remembrance of Easter was a major problem in the, uh, in the early church for years. Some people wanted to observe it on a Sunday. Some wanted to observe it on the exact date. And when we come to Easter and we observe the resurrection, which is a good thing to remember, but we remember that every Sunday. But when we focus on the resurrection at Easter, that day's not not the day that the Lord rose from the grave. We don't know exactly. We know when it was that year, but we don't know necessarily today. The same thing with His birth. We don't know. The calendars have changed, and all kinds of things like that have changed. But we don't know the exact date of Christ's birth. It probably was one of 364 other days, and not December 25th. We get that because that's when the uh, pagans. And Rome had their big festival, uh, their winter uh, solstice festival, and the celebration, of I think it was called the Saturnalia, and it was just the winter festival because now the days were going to start getting longer and it wasn't going to be dark as long at at, at night and, and winter would soon be over. Or they could see the light at the end of the tunnel or something like that. So that's where we end up. We're having a celebration on December 25th. It has its roots back in the ancient uh, pagan practices. So Paul says, how can you turn back to all this? I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. And it's not that they're losing their salvation, but that they're saved. They're just going to give up like Esau did. They're going to give up all that they have as part of their birthright and their adoption in Christ and will forfeit all of their inheritance rights and they will end up at the judgment seat of Christ with nothing. Well, next week we'll come back and begin in verse 12. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us, the vast array of spiritual blessings, the assets that you have given us that not only enable us to live the spiritual life, but to grow to spiritual maturity, to fulfill all the things that you have for us in your plan so that we can glorify you in the angelic conflict. Father, I pray that we might be mindful of the fact that we have been given this great, uh, these great privileges as part of our adoption and that we would not squander our birthright, but we would use it, under, realize our obligations and our responsibilities to grow to spiritual maturity, that we might use these in our lives, that we might glorify you and not be failures in the spiritual life. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.